from HerbMentor.com, this is Herb Mentor Radio. You're listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is Todd Caldicott. Todd is a medical herbalist and practitioner of Ayurvedic medicine, author of the textbook Ayurveda, The Divine Science of Life, Food is Medicine, The Theory and Practice of Food, and the editor of a text on Nepalese ethnobotany called Ayurveda in Nepal. Todd teaches and practices in the Vancouver, BC area and works as a consultant in the natural products industry. Todd was also the director of clinical herbal studies at Wild Rose College and is a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. Also, he is dad to three kids and your oldest is 16, you said, right, Todd? That's right, 16. 16. And you can visit Todd at toddcaldicott.com, C-A-L-D-E-C-O-T-T. ToddCaldicott.com and his site is jam-packed with amazing free articles and videos. I got lost there. There was so much amazing, great information there. Um, so Todd, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Well, you know, it was great spending time with you in line for coffee at the traditional <laughs> at the traditional <laughs> traditions in Western medicine com- I mean herbalism conference. So that was uh, that was fun. We were kind of uh, found ourselves a couple days in a row right behind each other in, in line and, and it was great because we got to set this interview up. So you never know where I'm gonna meet people. <laughs> so and now you join us. So Todd, there's lots of questions I want to ask you. Um as you know, your life's been pretty fascinating, and on Herb Mentor, folks are always love hearing about how herbalists got started uh, and their training and what they went through. So, um, how did you start on your path of, of herbal medicine, and what got you into that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I was a film and television actor mm-hmm. for about ten years, right out of high school, uh, and I did that uh, for a number of years. But I, I kind of got bored of it. Uh, you know, um, I was a little bit of uh, an iconoclast and uh, a little eccentric as well. Uh, I didn't usually dress appropriately to go to the auditions and my agent wanted to send me to New York and, uh, you know, uh, get a role on the, in the soaps, uh, or the move down to LA and he wanted me to start working out the gym and shave the little spaces between my eyebrows. And I, I just, it just wasn't something I was that interested in. Uh, even though I enjoy theater, I enjoy the arts very much, uh, it, it, it wasn't something that really spoke to me on a deep level. And when I really thought about my life, I thought, you know, I, I wanted to it to mean something. And I wanted to uh, contribute something to the world. And uh, so I went to India and I spent a year traveling around there. And uh, I, I got very sick because I was, I was traveling on, on the cheap I think my budget for traveling in India, and this is in 1989, uh, was about $2,000. So mm-hmm. I was only surviving on a couple bucks a day, not even that. And uh, yeah, I got bacillary and amoebic dysentery at uh, t- two different times. Uh, my health kind of recovered when I spent a month and a bit uh, up in Hunza, which is in northern Pakistan. And uh, it actually was an amazing experience just seeing how high-quality food and glacial water was able to restore my health. But I did come back to Canada with a chronic GI issue, and I sought medical treatment, uh, the help of uh, naturopaths and uh, Chinese medical doctors and uh, traditional medical doctors, and nothing had really seemed to help until I met an Ayurvedic physician mm-hmm. who was really the first to give me some practical guidelines on my diet. 
uh, everyone else was sort of interested in giving me uh, a, a remedy, um, a herbal remedy or a drug. Uh, these kind of complicated regimens in some some parts. You know, the naturopath had me on the caprylic acid bentonite psyllium combination with a bunch of other stuff and probiotics, and that didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it wasn't until I, I spent time with this Ayurvedic physician and later he became my teacher, uh, that I noticed a real turnaround in my health. And I was just fascinated with, with that and also Ayurveda. And so I was looking for places to study. And back then there really wasn't anything, uh, in my area, except that a new college had opened up called the Coastal Mountain College of Healing Arts. Hmm. And the dean of the college was Chanchal Cabrera. And it was also um, supported by uh, Terry Woolard, who uh, practices and teaches in Calgary, but had expanded his his uh, clinic and college to Vancouver. And, and they happened to, just at that time when I was looking, there was a, th- a three and a half year full time clinical program that was um, that was accredited and uh, that was eligible for student loans through the provincial. Uh, government and so it was just very serendipitous, and I I was the I was the uh, among the first group to enroll in that program and the first to graduate. And unfortunately, that college no longer exists. Uh, it has kind of since uh, remorphed or morphed into the uh, Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine. It's quite a different school now than mm-hmm. the curric- the curriculum is very different. Uh, but that's that's where where the school went after uh, after it fizzled out. So yeah, I, that was my training uh, as a as a medical clinical herbalist, and after that, I went to India and studied at a hospital in the south of India called the Ayurveda Chikitsalam, and I spent about a half year there. And after that, I I, I came back to Canada and began to practice. And wow, <laughs> and and you can practice like in in Canada. See, a lot of people are sometimes confused about you know, what's licensed and not licensed. Is, is, is herbalism licensed in Canada? No, it's it's much the same issue as the United States. It's an unlicensed, unregulated profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of us practice outside of any kind of clear legal definition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same kind of caveats, the same issues uh, in the United States are also found here in Canada. I see. So that's like fascinating or this like, oh, I just went to India and studied for half year. Like, like, how did you get to do that? You know, like there's people you met at the Coastal Mountain School and like, what was that experience like? Well, one of my teachers here in Canada, Dr. Sukumaran, mm-hmm. the fellow who uh, helped me with, originally with my chronic GI issue I acquired in India, uh, it was through his contacts that I was able to find and uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty easy uh, connection. And uh, actually, I went there, believe it or not, with my wife, who was six months pregnant, and my thirteen-month-old son. And she also gave birth in India while we were there, which is also an, a pretty fascinating experience. That is wow. And and so you also, I I also saw that you the, the work you've done in Nepal did that come much later, or is that around the same time? Yeah, that came later. That that was uh, through my uh, contact with uh, Alan Tillotson, who is a herbalist and practitioner out of um, Delaware. And uh, I met him in the late 1990s, and we uh, were, were chatting about our love and fascination 
of Ayurveda and, and traditional herbal medicine. And he mentioned to me uh, uh, that uh, he was working on a project with uh, his teacher who actually hadn't passed away then. Um, he has since passed away, a Dr. Manana Bhadra Bhajacharya. And he invited me to work on the project. And so uh, I began to work on that project. And then 2009, uh, after Dr. Mana had passed, I traveled to Nepal with my son. And I spent uh, five weeks with Dr. Madhu, Dr. Mana's son, going over the text and sitting with him in clinic and uh, visiting his, uh, his pharmacy and observing uh, some of the traditional medicinals that they prepare in Nepal. So that was 2009 that I did that. So on that track, you're in Nepal and, and the things that you're noticing, um, what was really fascinating here is that I'm, I'm seeing that when you were healing, you, people are giving you various um, these supplements or herbs, if you will, and kind of thinking of them like drugs. But then you find this form of medicine that's lifestyle and diet-based medicine. And when you are in Nepal, is you know the the people who live there is that just the way they always think about health and healing or you know what i'm saying like is that I, just I, built yeah, into I, their life that way it was at one time you know i think that the the big issue that we're dealing with not only in nepal but india africa all over the world in countries that we previously described as developing countries that are trying to emerge into being second world or maybe first world nation status mm -hmm. is that people are uh, rapidly uh, giving up their orientation towards you know traditional practices. And Nepal is a really good example of that. You know the country kind of survives on foreign aid. I think 55% of its gross domestic product is foreign aid. And the population has exploded over the last 30 years. There's a flood of cheap Chinese products mm -hmm. coming in through the northern border, which is displacing, mm -hmm. you know, traditional handicrafts. And, you know, people are desperate to get a job and to support their family. And they don't see much economic, economic opportunity in studying traditional herbal medicine the way it's been practiced in Nepal for thousands of years. People are, are not interested in... Uh, pursuing, uh, you know, a traditional relationship with a teacher, something that a model that's been practiced in India and Nepal for thousands of years. And if they want economic opportunity, they'll go, just like a lot of folks here in the West, they'll go to university. Now, unfortunately, the training that you'll get in university is very different than that of this kind of traditional time-honored relationship. And my observation was that the practitioners who are who are trained in the in the college university system don't have the comprehensive detailed practical knowledge of these traditional physicians mm -hmm. and so what you're seeing is a real rapid loss of traditional knowledge uh, within a generation in Nepal and this is part of the reason why I'm so passionate about this project because Dr. Uh, Madhu who is the inheritor of his father's tradition, and this is an 800-year-old hereditary tradition. It's a patrilinear tradition, so it's, it's passed down traditionally you know, from father to son. Well, Dr. Madhu doesn't have any sons, and his daughter, I mean, even if he could pass it down to her, you know, she's, she's, she's still a child, mm -hmm. so she's not a candidate to receive this knowledge. 
So basically, it all ends with him. So we're talking about 800 years of empirical, clinical, traditional knowledge. The uh, Bajacharya lineage is a is a fascinating uh, subject of study, uh, and uh, it, it comes from it comes from um, India. Uh, see, originally the uh, the Vajrayana tradition, which is a, a Buddhist um, tradition. Uh, was current in northern India around the 10th, 11th centuries. And there were successive ways of invasion from the West, from Turks, from the Persians, from the Arabs. And some of those invaders were ruthless. And they were interested in just stamping out any vestige of uh, traditional Indian knowledge. And so they destroyed monasteries, they, they, they uh, killed monks, they destroyed temples... And so the Vajrayana uh, monastic tradition went underground. Mm -hmm. uh, it became part of this hereditary familial tradition that was passed on from father, father to son. And um, the, what, what happened was that um, uh, about eight to 900 years ago, the tradition moved up into Nepal and uh, Dr. Ahmad, who's the patriarch of the family, uh, 800 years ago, took up the consecration of Bajracharya, meaning that they became um, Buddhist priests. And they took on this tradition and basically began to offer free health care to the population as part of their commitment, as part of the consecration of being Bajracharya. And they've been doing so for 800 years, so they've been offering free medical care in Nepal for, for that long. And... One of the specialties of this particular tradition is that they also performed uh, some ritualistic roles. Uh, so, for example, um, in India, there are a class of, of, um, of priests called Brahmins, and they officiate over weddings. They're involved in performing different rituals to, um, to ensure good crops, uh, etc., etc. And uh, this was no different uh, for the Bajracharya lineage, uh, except that they also, because they had this kind of um, medical perspective, they were also involved in dealing with spiritual illness and spiritual disease. And so they used things like mantra, yantra, uh, and, and other kind of um, you know, spiritual techniques to treat essentially what we refer to as psychiatric or psychological disease. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so this is a part of their, of their tradition, but that's... But that's been lost. Now, for example, you know, people in Nepal nowadays, you know, if they have a, a mental illness, they're not going to go to a traditional Ayurvedic physician to receive mantra, to receive some special incense. They're going to go and get some kind of drug, or they're going to be institutionalized according to the you know, Western medical tradition. And so a very important role that these traditional physicians used to play in society is basically gone because the populace no longer believes in it. Uh, they don't have any faith in it. They, they, they uh, don't have any interest in it. They have the same kind of materialistic interests that we have. They want iPhones. They want brand new Nikes. You know, they want a you know, refrigerator. They want an SUV. They don't want to burn incense and chant a bunch of mantras. And, and you know, it's, it's old-fashioned. It's archaic. And this perspective is, is, is rapidly sweeping across the world, and it's... It, it's, it's not only is it uh, exceptionally sad for humanity that we're losing touch with our our our, uh, our heritage, 
But we're also going to be missing out on uh, all of these practices, uh, some of which still offer an enormous amount of value to us in terms of their, their overall benefits. So what we're seeing is this tidal shift away from traditional medicine to modern medicine and then, and then leaving behind a huge amount of traditional knowledge in the dust. And, and because there aren't any people practicing it, it's just going to dissipate. It's just going to be lost. And so we're seeing that in Nepal. This is one of the reasons why I have such a driving passion to publish all of uh, Dr. Mana's works. And he actually wrote 47 books. Oh, the, first, the first book that we wrote, uh, Ayurveda in Nepal, is just a summary of all of the clinical practices. And then each successive book uh, is a book on a, on a particular specialty uh, in medicine. So cancer, neurological, psychiatric illness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That's just amazing. And so, I mean, even the, um, like, foods as well, like, as far as, like, diets and herbs and, and ways of cooking, is that also changing there in Nepal as well, do you see? Absolutely. Not just Nepal, but all over the world. Wow. Um, you know, when I was in, in – good example, this is not in Nepal, but I, I practiced for a little while in Trinidad and Tobago. And, you know, when I was there in 2004 – uh, there were some parts of the island that only in the last 10 years received electricity. And this is a pretty small island. So um, there's been rapid changes to that culture. You know, previously they, they grew sugar cane and the sugar cane industry collapsed. And then BP put in a big oil refinery. And then very rapidly, there's a lot of money in the economy. Uh, people are, you know, buying Japanese imports and all have credit cards and wearing brand new running shoes even though they only have about 10 years of oil left, uh, people are importing food from uh, Mexico and Venezuela. They're not growing food anymore. And when I was there, about 90% of the people that I was seeing were suffering from the effects of uncontrolled diabetes. You know, so people that had diabetic gangrene and um, retinal hemorrhage, this was, this was exceptionally common. And people just had lost, had lost touch with how to connect with the land, how to connect with food. And so most of the time I spent counseling these folks was trying to correct their diet because they were now using all those industrial replicas of traditional foods just like we do, you know, like a, the Denny's Grand Slam breakfast that we, you know, that some people <laughs> eat, you know what I mean? You know, the, the bacon and the eggs and the bread. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, a breakfast that's kind of modeled on that early 1900s farm fresh breakfast but of course it's nothing similar to that at all it's just a replica it's an, an industrial uh, replica of what used to be traditional food and so we see, see the same things happening in Nepal people aren't eating the traditional rices and the traditional grains that they used to eat uh, they're eating out at Subway or you know their version of, of fast foods you know they're not eating the traditional foods that they used to eat and people rapidly are forgetting how to prepare them. But are, are there people, I mean, you're saying, especially when you're saying in Nepal, like we're maybe in where you were as well in the islands, is that you have a generation where so quickly where this has happened and now all these diseases are coming like diabetes. Are people, like, are people making the connections at all? Like, No, they're not necessarily. You know, I, I think the pendulum has to swing completely to one way before people go enough is enough. And, I, I'm, and 
you would, you know, when does that happen? You know, what, what, what's the threshold? Uh, you know, in India and Nepal, I mean, their <laughs> rates of diabetes skyrocketing. They have the highest rates in the world right now. Uh, and I think it's, uh, there's an increased awareness of this problem. But because the solutions are all medical solutions, people aren't really getting to the cause because the medical solutions invariably aren't about prevention. They're about treatment. And they're about using uh, various drugs to control blood sugar, to control blood pressure, to reduce uh, hyperlipidemia. They're not about actually addressing the underlying factors. And there's some interesting cultural reasons why those areas have so much diabetes. And primarily that relates to the fact that sugar, which you know, used to be prepared at a village level mm-hmm. and uh, you know, when people produced sugar – it was something that we that they call a gur or you know jaggery is another word for it. It's basically similar to rapadura sugar. It is you know just solidified cane sugar juice, and it takes an amount of an enormous amount of energy and time to extract this substance, and was used traditionally in India, but it was took so much time and effort and energy to prepare that when people had it, it was treated as a form of of gold, and so when you came to visit someone, they might offer you some sweet as a way to honor you. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, in India, everyone has access to white sugar. Mm-hmm. That cultural tradition of of celebrating people and honoring them by giving them sweets is still there, but now sugar is much more ubiquitous. It's much more available. So now people are eating sugar all the time with that cultural bias that, yes, you know, sugars and sweets are good things, but you know, the context has been lost. Previously, it was it was a, a kind of valuable commodity that was treasured and was given to people uh, as a form of respect. Now everyone has access to big bags of white sugar, and you know this is one of the reasons why India has such high rates of diabetes. There's this cultural ethos around elevating sugar as being uh, a wonderful food, oh. but it's become too too available in 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 the uh, marketplace. And as a result, it's created all these diseases. And there's so many people, and there's so like that to, that you'd need to edge. People would have to educate about that, and it's a cultural thing. And and boy, that sure is tempting. That white sugar, it's it's a, it's a drug in itself. So I can see kind of that's a tough situation. Yeah. <laughs> boy, well, good for you in, in Nepal, going and trying your best anyway in your power to. Uh, to try to at least document so in the future if the you know i mean you just hope that in the future at some point that uh, there's going to be a like you said the pendulum swing in a way where there might be a, a groups of of you know people interested in, in natural medicine that might want to say hey wait a minute you know look at the root of our problems here and look we can uh, do this through through diet yeah, and, and you know and the other the other aspect, the you know the the, the tradition that the Bajracharyas are famous for the the spiritual medicine is really interesting, and there's a there's a real strong interest here in the West because of course we've been through decades of modern psychiatry and psychology, and we know well the effects of these interventions, and people are very much interested in looking for more holistic measures to address these issues. And, uh, you know, Nepal and India are inheritors of this ancient tradition of treating mental illness in a very different way that, you know, uses uh, imagery and icons as well as the support of community 
uh, has a much more kind of spiritual perspective, something everything, everyone here in the West is hungering for, but we don't really have. And so we're looking to them for inspiration, for education and knowledge. Wow. And their attitude towards it is like, well, that stuff is just all old. Why are you interested in that stuff? That stuff is like a bunch of superstition. So, you know, it's going to take our interest, Western interest, in these kinds of interventions and practices in many ways to help re-inspire people in India and Nepal to rekindle this knowledge and, 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 and maintain that tradition. But it's getting close to the wire because we're talking about the difference of like one or two generations before it just disappe- disappears completely. Because it's, because it's in the, with the elders and, the, and so exactly. much to it. You have a, a, a tightly woven tapestry of a culture of, of art and spirituality and, and diet and music and everything. It just makes up the entire cultural basket, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, the um, so those there's folks listening who may not actually be familiar because an herb mentor we because well you know it's not like we have many people on there that are are knowledgeable. We haven't um, taught really anything on there about Ayurveda, uh, but I but I mean herb mentor for many people is just one of many places people learn from. So I know people might know from other places, but can you describe like, you know, so when you give someone a talk, say, okay, this Ayurveda is this. So could you describe what exactly this medicine is? Well, Ayurveda is the traditional system of medicine from ancient India. So it's not unlike traditional Chinese medicine in the sense that it's just the traditional medicine that evolved in India and actually expanded beyond India very early in its development. So, you know, we think about India, you know, we have to include the countries around there, including, um, you know, Bangladesh and Bhutan, Thailand, um, Tibet, Nepal, Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, Iran. All those countries were heavily influenced by... Uh, the type of medicine that evolved in the Indian subcontinent. And uh, there's actually also evidence that uh, early Greek medicine, early Greek humoral medicine, drew a lot of inspiration and knowledge from wandering uh, physicians that came uh, from India and wandered across Western Asia into, into Southern Europe. So we're talking about a system of medicine that's been around for a very, very long time and uh, is a very comprehensive approach to health and wellness and encompasses a broad, ra- a broad range of practices from general internal medicine to pediatrics to the treatment of, of spiritual illness and psychological, psychiatric illness. Surgery was also a major part of Ayurveda and when the uh, British physicians came to India in the uh, 19th century, they actually learned of many different surgical techniques, including rhinoplasty, uh, cataract surgery. They learned some of these techniques from traditional Ayurvedic physicians. Uh, I mean, there's evidence in the traditional uh, literature of India that they were performing gastrointestinal surgery. Uh, They were even injecting medications uh, subdermally uh, using uh, reeds that were very finely sharpened to a point as early as the Buddhist period in India, and that's basically going back about 2,500 years. So a very advanced system of medicine was practiced in India for a very long time. 
and uh, it is, was the inspiration for, I think, for uh, aspects of Greek medicine, also aspects of Unani medicine. The Arabs learned a lot of stuff from the Indians, and some of the uh, traditional Indian texts were transcribed into Arabic and then later made their way in various parts and forms to, to Europe as well. So Ayurvedic medicine is this ancient system of medicine. The word itself, Ayurveda, uh, comes from two Sanskrit words, uh, ayus, which means life, and then veda, which means knowledge or divine knowledge. It's believed that Ayurveda was divinely inspired. It was received from the gods and passed down to humanity, so it has this sort of divine uh, aspect ascribed to it traditionally. So it's, it's, it's as the science of life, it encompasses not just the treatment of disease, but also the prevention of disease, and also how we orientate ourselves and our lives in the natural world. So it, it encompasses a, you know, a food, medicine, our environment, uh, the, the place that we live in, any, any, all the ways in which we relate to the natural world. Ayurveda is there to help us discover how we can best relate to it so we can support our health and promote happiness and long life. And it's amazing that we all just don't want to all practice this because it's it's amazing. <laughs> well, you know what, John? I, I I've I've uh, one of the things I recently presented at the Traditions in Western Herbal Medicine conference was uh, um, discussing a link between Ayurvedic medicine and the traditional system of medicine that evolved here in North America in the uh, early 19th century, physiomedicalism. And what's fascinating to me is just how similar these two systems are. Uh, in fact, they, they seem to draw on the same inspiration, which is the understanding of the vital force and using, honing our five senses to help us navigate our way through the natural world and our relationship to medicines and disease. And what's fascinating to me is that the originator of the physiomedical system in, in North America, Samuel Thompson, developed a system, uh, a, an approach to healthcare that he, you know, he, he, he patented, patented as a system of cures. Uh, it's very similar to the traditional Indian system of panchakarma. They're both this kind of detoxification protocol that involved uh, inducing vomiting and using purgation and making the patient sweat. The system that's used in India is far more sophisticated, but they're very similar. And so when you compare the two systems, you find that uh, they're very similar and they have the same kind of inspiration, which is really trying to relate to the natural world and understand natural rhythms and cycles. And so while the semantics are different, you know, we're using Sanskrit terms and We've got such a rich tradition of literature to, to, to utilize when we're talking about Ayurveda uh, from India and Nepal. In fact, I think that what the Western herbalists are doing here in North America is basically the same thing. It's just that the term terminology is different, the practices are different. Perhaps it's not always as sophisticated because the tradition isn't as long and we don't have the same kind of empirical evidence behind it. But I think that the two, the two systems are the same. I mean, it's not like our relationship with the plants change just because we use different words. Right. You know, we right. all still maintain that relationship to the plants in, in the same way. And I think there's an enormous amount that we can learn from each other. But and, I, I, and, I think fundamentally, though, like when you're saying with that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a practitioner of five element acupuncture. And, 
and what I, and what I see is like what you, exactly what you said is that the cycles and rhythms of nature seems like when you remove the person from from nature, whether it's uh, practices or the lifestyle through the seasons and acknowledging that uh, eating or living locally and um, you know using foods that aren't over processed and things like that like the more you take a person away from the natural rhythms and cycles where they live it seems like the sicker that they get and um you know and doesn't you know that seems to be basically what you're saying because that's what i see in my own patients absolutely you know i you know uh, my my son was suffering from insomnia uh and you know he was just 14 years old you know every night i would say you know good night and turn off his light and i'd head upstairs and of course you know, uh, after I left, he'd flick the light back on and start reading again. And sometimes he'd be up until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Well, I took him with me to Nepal, and uh, he ended up living in a Nepalese village. And, and in Nepal, the sun sets about 6.30 in the evening, and they finish up with their evening meal, and then they burn a, a 20-rupee candle, and they sit around, and they chat for a little while and kind of hang out, and the candle burns down, and the eyelids get droopy, and everyone starts yawning, and then finally the candle burns out. They're not going to burn another 20 rupee candle. It's about 8.30 at night. It's pitch black outside. Everyone goes to bed. Right. So his insomnia was cured the first day he was in Nepal. <laughs> he didn't have insomnia anymore. It was gone. You know. And so you look about the, the impact about you know, things like electricity. You know, Electricity is a boon in many ways, but look how dramatically it affects something as simple as sleep. I mean, we've been able to get enough sleep, you know, for this last two and a half million years of our evolution, but with the advent of electricity and not really knowing how to develop a, a, a wise, proper relationship with this very powerful tool that we've developed, we've ended up creating a whole host of other issues such that people aren't getting enough sleep nowadays. And people are suffering from depression and exhaustion as a result of not getting enough sleep because they're not able to follow these natural rhythms and cycles. And, and so electricity is just one small example of the impact of our modern technology on our lives and how it's removed us from following and integrating ourselves with these natural rhythms and cycles. And I think what we need to do now is develop a higher awareness and you know, accept the boon that these modern technologies provide us, but at the same time, look to see how we can reintegrate them back into an observation of natural rhythms and cycles. And I think traditional systems of medicine like Ayurveda can assist in this process. Right, because there's um, a lot of, you know, it's connected to a culture that for that, that a lot of people, I mean, there's, there's, there's elders and knowledge and wisdom and people been practicing in lineages that are intact still in the world that we can learn from so it's not like we're having to totally reinvent the wheel but it's interesting i mean but you're saying that ayurveda influenced so much medicine like uh all all over the east all over you know into the, the huge part of the world anyway and so it can in a sense really influence and teach and inspire traditional western herbalism too can't it Absolutely. And as I said, that was the main focus of, of my recent uh, lecture at the Traditions in Western Herbal Medicine Conference was looking at how we can integrate uh, the two systems 
and really uh, capitalize upon all that traditional knowledge that's there in Ayurveda. Some of it needs to be kind of translated for a Western context. But as I said, our, our fundamental relationship to the earth, to the plants, doesn't really change. Uh, you know, one of my teachers in India told me that there's no such thing as an Ayurvedic herb. There's only a herb that we use with the intent of Ayurveda. And he fully encouraged me to uh, explore and understand the plants in my local area in the context of Ayurveda. And so that's really been, been one of my major focuses is using local plants but trying to understand them within that Ayurvedic context. And it's been my big hope to share this knowledge to Western herbalists, not to, not to diminish the valuable contribution that Western herbalists have made, but really we're a global culture. You know, I mean, I think we need to get past this dichotomy of East and West. I live here in Vancouver and, you know, I grew up eating Chinese food and Indian food and you know, I've traveled all over the world. I don't even know what West is anymore or East. It all seems to be coming together as a fusion of cultures. And I don't see why that, that also shouldn't influence the development of Western herbal medicine as well. There's so much that we can learn from each other. Uh, and likewise, I think there are many Ayurvedic physicians that would learn, be able to learn an enormous amount from some of the Western Earth's, uh, Earth-centered herbalists that really do understand and have that very powerful connection to the Earth. Because in some places in India, in India Ayurveda is kind of turned into being very much of an intellectual exercise. And part of the reason for that is just that um, there's been this movement away from this traditional guru-disciple relationship, which mm-hmm. was developed over decades to now people going to university and studying for four years and thinking that after four years they understand Ayurveda. You know, Ayurveda was never taught like that. You know, right. it, it was so you're seeing a, a shift there as well. I guess the sort of similarity might be, say, a herbalists that apprentice and in the field and spend decades acquiring their knowledge, and then say a naturopath that goes to school for four years who thinks that they know as much as a herbalist that's been studying in the field for 20 or 30 years. There's no comparison in terms of the practical knowledge between those two groups. Not to take any away from either of them, but the knowledge isn't the same. Right. And so I think that uh, the herbalists that we have here in the West that are really committed to this lifestyle also have a lot to share. And I, I think that the opportunity here is, is that we can really all learn from each other. And is this, and is this what inspired um, your book, Food is Medicine? Well, what inspired my book, Food is Medicine, was uh, saying the same thing over and over and over <laughs> to, this, to, my, to my patients and really wishing that I could just give them a book and say, here, just read page <laughs> 126, 145, and, you know, and, and have a real simple approach. I, it's, a, it's a book that I've had uh, in my mind to write uh, really since I began practicing 15, 16 years ago but just never got around to doing it. So it was written, even though it does have a lot of references, it's got over 277 references, and it's very concise, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's quite a dense text in many ways, but it was, it's meant to be a very practical text to really provide people with the knowledge that they need to navigate all the information that they get on diet that, that can be so confusing and so overwhelming to people. So it was to help present an energetic framework or approach to diet that actually matches the way people experience food. You know, when you, when oh. you look at your plate, 
you don't look at your plate and go, well, yeah, look, there's like 227 calories of brown rice there and another 375 calories of chicken. And, mm. you know, people don't relate to their food when they're eating it, when they're experiencing it as calories, as macronutrients, as micronutrients. They relate right. to it like it tastes good or it doesn't taste good. It's too hot. It's too cold. <laughs> it feels too heavy in their bodies it, or it makes them feel too light. That's the way they relate to food. And so we need to have a model of food that actually matches the way we experience it. And that's the big disconnect, I think, in modern nutrition is that we've got this objective tool of science, of clinical nutrition to measure the impact of food, except that it's counterintuitive. It doesn't match the way we experience food, and so it doesn't really work. It's yeah. more or less a disaster. I know. <laughs> so we need to come up with a method or approach to food that actually matches the way we interact with food on a day-to-day -day basis, and it's not that complicated. And Ayurveda has a model to do that. So what I've done is I've woven in this model of Ayurveda and its approach to food to give people a qualitative approach to understanding diet instead of this quantitative one, which relies on measurement mm -hmm. as, as being the chief measure, sorry, the, the, the chief criteria of how we understand food, you know, measuring calories or macronutrients or antioxidants. I think there's another way we can approach food and look at it that really matches the way we experience it. Wow. And and you and you also um I mean that that's great because I remember taking a nutrition class and we had to do this exercise for a week where we recorded all the food we ate and you know all the different calories and this and that and all the different types of micronutrients that were in it and all this and I was like this is just stupid you know like well who's going to do that I mean you have to have a you know a, at least a four year degree in clinical nutrition to even make heads or tails right, of it right. and and then it's who has the time to do that. I think I think the main purpose of that is if like a naturopath or somebody has somebody do that, it's like then they can come to the realization like, wow, I really am eating crap. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different dietary therapies out there. And recently I, I blogged on this difference between the high fat diet advocated by the Weston A. Price Foundation and Atkins and and other groups that advocate these, you know, high fat diet, these traditional fats like butter and, and coconut oil. And then the other spectrum, you've got the Dr. Dean Ornish groups uh, and advocates, the, the, the raw food vegans and vegetarians that advocate this low fat diet. And yet, you know, both, you know, people in both groups are seeing improvements in their overall health. Uh, and some people, those diets don't do well for. You know, and so then you get arguments and disputes between the two groups about which mm -hmm. position is right or wrong. But the thing that both the groups advocate is that they say, well, just avoid all those modern industrial foods. You know, stop eating junk food. And, and so much of my diet is involved. That's what it involves, you know, is getting people to go back to eating whole foods. And that has such a dramatic effect on your overall health. I mean, right there, you'll get a 50 to 60% improvement in someone's health issue if they just stop eating all that modern industrial that, junk. That's it because I, I – I, this is a great conversation because I love your opinion because I sometimes feel that when people take on something like a raw food diet or veganism or some kind of – or even if it's a spectrum of like, oh, I'm all Atkins or I'm all this, that it's all like it, – it, it's it seems to me a bit extremist. Like the, the, And I use that word meaning that – 
they get religious over it. Like this is the way it's got to be. And, and I, I just have a hard time with that way of thinking in general. Like if anything, this is the way it's got to be. So what's your opinion on like all, like that's a big, that's a loaded question and you can say whatever you want. And I know it's a a hot top. And I don't mind pushing people's buttons here, you know, but, (laughs) you know, but I'm just saying that like, (laughs) like, I don't know. Like, it just seems like it's, when you go extreme, like all one, well, I'm only going to eat raw food or I'm only going to eat meat. Like there's got to be something not so smart about that. Is that right? What do you think about all that? Well, it's, it is a complex question primarily because the traditional human diet has a lot of variability mm-hmm. depending on factors like climate. I mean, if you're living in the far North, if you're living in the Arctic, you're eating a lot of meat mm-hmm. and there's nothing else to eat. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're living in the tropics, there's abundant vegetation pretty much all year round. And so your diet obviously is going to be much higher in vegetation. There's always this cost-benefit ratio. How much energy does it take for you to acquire that food energy uh, as as well as digest it? And so we have to factor in things like that. You know, Ayurveda has a very broad approach when when we look at diet. And so we can reconcile that dietary spectrum from the, you know, the low-fat vegetarian diet all the way to the high-fat meat diet. You know, all those diets are potentially appropriate for -hmm. different people in different places, different times in their lives. And I think that we need to have a much more flexible, nuanced, sophisticated approach when looking at these different dietary therapies. You know, something like a raw food vegan diet can be very helpful for some people for, you know, a relatively short period of time, you know, certainly nothing longer than a year. And that even might be extreme for some people. And there's definitely some people that should not, you know, be on a, on a raw food diet at all, especially children, especially women, especially if they're pregnant or they're lactating. Older folks as well, I would definitely counsel them not to eat that kind of diet because it's a very depleting diet. The term that we use in Ayurveda is called langana. Langana means like to lighten the body, to diminish the body, to take away from the body. And so for people who are suffering diseases of excess, and let's face it, our culture suffers mostly from diseases of excess. Mm -hmm. People eat too much. They don't get enough exercise. And so they could use some lightning, you know, they could use some diminishing therapy. But at the same time, you know, life is a battle of acquiring enough energy to stay healthy and provide your body with enough energy to maintain all the different functions, including reproduction. And so that you don't want to go overboard with that kind of depleting you know, diminishing therapy. It's good for a period of time, but then you need to get back to eating a diet which really nourishes and supports your vitality. And so all of these diets are appropriate at different times uh, in your life depending on what issue you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for people suffering from immune deficiency or, or, or weight loss or, you know, women who have problems with amenorrhea or absent menstruation, uh, you know, I definitely would not recommend that they go on a raw food vegan diet. I would put, tend to put them on a high-fat, higher-protein diet. And remember also that when we're talking about a high-fat, high-protein diet, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a low-vegetable diet. You know, I encourage everyone that eats 
animal fats and proteins to you know fill their plate up at least half full with steamed or stir-fried veggies. And these don't provide you with a lot in terms of calories, but they certainly provide you with a, a lot in terms of minerals and antioxidants and fibers. And perhaps that's just my bias as a herbalist, but I do think that we need to be eating a lot of vegetation, even if it doesn't contain a lot of carbohydrates like root vegetables or, or, or cereals or legumes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so then, um, you know, because sometimes I just think that some people in our culture just get a little too obsessed about their diet. Like they take it a little too overboard as far as like, especially when, when there's so much abundance in the supermarkets, you know, and it's like, you know, I'm like, lighten up, just have a whole foods diet, you know, just eat real, just eat food. Like, you know, if it's got ingredients, it's not food. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's the key thing. I mean, it's it's there's this there's been this uh, nutritional distortion in our diet that's occurred over the last 100 years, and it has such a huge role mm-hmm. in our health. I don't think you know, as a practicing herbalist, that I'm going to get many results if my patients aren't making these shifts in their diet. Right. And when they do, regardless of whether they make that shift towards vegetarian whole foods diet or, you know, high fat, you know, high animal protein diet, they will tend to get better. And then for me, my goal is to help fine tune that so that I can help them develop an approach to diet, which really meets their needs. I mean, there are just some people out there that just don't need to eat a lot of fat. Mm -hmm. You know, they tend to accumulate weight very easily they tend to be, you know, um, you know, in Ayurveda, we call them the kapha body types. And we all know these people. They just look at a plate of food and they put on five pounds. They don't need, you know, a high nutrient value diet. And they obviously need good nutrition. Everyone does. But they tend to suffer from the effects of overnutrition. And so, you know, they could get by with eating much less fat, much less protein, mm. and more vegetable-based foods. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have those people that just don't put on weight no matter what they do. Mm. And primarily, it's because they have a very hard time holding and containing energy in their body. Partly, it's because their brains just move too quickly. In Ayurveda, we call these the vata body type. And they really do need to eat much more fat and much more animal protein in their diet to stay balanced, to stay healthy. And so we need to have more of a nuanced, more sophisticated, subtle perspective when it comes to diet and and, and, and these different body types. And then also how the diet would change according to the seasons, like what you'd be eating in February would be very different from what you're eating, say, in August. Mm -hmm. You know, and and that in, in large part, that's just reflected in our relationship with nature and what nature is providing to us during those times. What I really like about this book is that you do describe in the beginning, great introduction, and you just you describe these different doshas, the kapha, pitta, vata, and um, in relation to the things that you're talking about here. And then when I'm kind of going through it, um, a nice blend with scientific things, but also lots of um, a lot of recipes and and foods that you know aren't all things that you would just see in a strict Ayurvedic Indian <laughs> recipe book, but um, foods we're all familiar with and can, and cooking styles we're all familiar with. Right. You know, I, I think the, the, the key thing, I think, for a lot of people who are approaching Ayurveda, <clears throat> they see this connection between Ayurveda and yoga and, mm-hmm. you know, and then yoga and vegetarianism. Mm-hmm. Ah. And, you know, traditionally, in, in, there was no, you know, real connection between yoga and Ayurveda. You know, yoga 
uh, as the literal you know meaning of the word you know union uh, it's a it's a meditative spiritual uh, exercise wherein you're trying to connect your consciousness to a higher consciousness. That's not the goal of Ayurveda. The goal of Ayurveda is to promote a happy, healthy, long life. It's not there to help support your, uh, your, your spiritual endeavor. It's not to say that they're mutually incompatible. They're not. They can be compatible, but the goals are different. Yoga is oriented towards helping people achieve spiritual liberation. Ayurveda is helping to support healthy families, including moms and babies and grandmas and mm. everybody. They have different goals. Uh, but because of the connection between them and, and also because in India there's been this shift away from this traditional guru-disciple relationship towards people studying in, in universities, um, some of these tr- this traditional knowledge has been lost. And, and the real big shift has been that the higher echelon um, of the classes in India are the ones that tend to go to university. They tend to be Brahmins. Brahmins traditionally are vegetarians. And as a result, they're, as a result, they're necessarily kind of espousing this vegetarian ideal. But that never was even really a part of Ayurveda. So I find it disturbing that wow. a lot of Ayurvedic physicians recommend vegetarianism as the goal of Ayurveda, but it's not. I mean, if, if you actually look at the classical texts of Ayurveda, the Chaka Samhita, the Sushruta Samhita, you don't find any mention of vegetarianism in there. You know, in fact, almost every, every single disease that I've ever encountered usually requires the, the use of some kind of animal product to treat it. You know, it could be something like a milk decoction or um, more often it's a meat soup, you know, uh, to treat various different disorders. And... Uh, I, I think a great injustice has been done to Ayurveda by heavily promoting this vegetarian perspective. It doesn't do justice to the system, and it, and it also fragments it, and it causes damage to the integrity of Ayurveda. Ayurveda is an exceptionally practical, well-grounded system. And, uh, and so I think one of my goals for this book was to really blow that whole notion apart. You know, people can choose to be vegetarian, and in the book, I tell you exactly how Indians have been, you know, healthy vegetarians for centuries. I don't think that raw food veganism is a part of a sustainable vegetarian lifestyle. I think you can do it for some time for a particular purpose, but not for not for years. You know, it's just for a very limited kind of therapeutic detoxification uh, protocol. But one of my purposes of writing this book has been to kind of reintegrate Ayurveda uh, within its traditional framework and really discuss all the different foods, including animal products that were used in Ayurveda to support health. It's really important to me that to, to make sure that people have a well-grounded uh, understanding of the broad scro- scope that Ayurveda offers. That's, you know, I, I, honestly, I, my only exposure to Ayurveda has been through people who have been vegetarian. So I never really thought about it too much, you know. And so going through your book and, and hearing and listening to you speak, it's, I, I'll tell you that for me, it, it definitely blew that wide open for me. I went, oh, of course, this, they just, you know, when something resonates and just makes sense, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that, that that's. That's great, you know. Um, so thank you for 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 you know for doing this, and 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 you know, and it's a very all encompassing book. And you know, something else that's a little um, 
Another little controversial uh, area, you know, so, you know, you were talking about misunderstandings about how people might look at a certain diets or certain things, or maybe even Ayurveda and meat eating or versus vegetarian. Um, something else that I think that people getting into natural health kind of confuse uh, a lot is the whole notion of, of detoxification, fasting, that kind of stuff, because that's another polarizing type of topic that I've seen that a peep, some people go, Oh, you know, you, we're we're all dirty inside, and you have to keep detoxing us. And other people are like, "Well, we're just, you know, we're not dirty. We just are these beings of bacteria, and we have to nourish ourselves. And by nourishing ourselves and keeping ourselves healthy with good nourishing foods, our body's natural functions will do all the detoxing and eliminations and things that they need." So, um, where are you on that? And uh, as far as detoxing and fasting, and and you know, in, in, in that spectrum. Like, cause I'm interested cause you have a section about that in here and I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are, I think there are two distinct issues that we need to deal with. The first issue is a very troubling one. And that is that, uh, in the last hundred years, we've been exposed to a whole host of environmental toxins, pollutants in our environment that we've never been exposed to before. Right. And quite frankly, as a herbalist, I don't know how to deal with them because there is no traditional empirical knowledge in how to address it. So you think about all the xenoestrogens that are in the environment, all the other toxins that are in our food, that, we are, that, um, that are in our air, that are in our water. You know, we've never been exposed to these kinds of poisons before. So how do we deal with it? It's a, it's, a, it's a challenging question. It's, a, it's, it's something that we're going to gain a lot more experience of and dealing with uh, in decades to come. Uh, and I'm not really sure how you know, traditional medical perspectives like Ayurveda, what they have to say about that kind of level of toxicity. Um, I, I think Ayurveda's got all these you know, uh, very specific protocols to deal with detoxification and, and therapeutic detoxification. I'm not sure necessarily how applicable they are to this whole host of, of toxins that are, we're being exposed to in our modern world. So that's one issue, and I think that's a separate issue. And I think that we don't want to confuse that issue with the traditional concept of toxicity, which is more related to kind of a metabolic residue that gets created when the eliminatory functions in the body are impaired when our digestion is weak. And I think that's something separate. You know, a lot of companies out there sell all these you know, detoxification products and play upon all the fears of all these industrial toxins in our environment, but all the solutions and strategies that they offer in a very, you know, um, very simplistic kind of way are using herbal remedies that have been traditionally used to deal with this kind of metabolic residue. I don't necessarily think that they, they can be equated. I'm not sure. I think there's an area of research there that, that needs to be explored. But I think we need to keep those two things separate, mm -hmm. uh, at least conceptually, so we can understand that, we're, that when we're dealing with uh, toxicity, that we're talking about two different things here. Now, when it comes to dealing with the, the sort of metabolic residue, Ayurveda's got a name for this. It's called ama. And ama literally means undigested food. And so what Ayurveda says is that when we eat food, and the food is improper, or we're chewing too fast, we're, we're, not, we're not eating very mindfully, the combinations are poor, the, the, the food itself isn't very good for us, our digestion's weak, it creates this metabolic residue called ama. And ama um, is undigested food, 
Uh, traditionally, it was described that it passes into circulation. It gets deposited in different tissues of the body. It then aggravates uh, the doshas. So first it initiates congestion, which relates to kapha. So you get swelling and edema or just poor circulation in that area. Then the body tries to cook or remove that poison from that area. So that relates to pitta uh, and that relates to inflammation and heat. And then if that ama is being continuously produced and you're not stopping it, eventually that cooking away at the tissue weakens and damages it and as results in degeneration of that tissue. Hmm. And that in Ayurveda relates to vata. So you have this cycle of congestion, inflammation, and degeneration. And the origin of it is this metabolic residue called ama. So in Ayurveda, it's really important that we address this issue of ama by making sure that uh, we have good digestion and that we are able to eliminate this from our bodies. So Ayurveda, like a lot of traditional systems of medicine, is concerned with this idea of toxicity and certainly recommends uh, detoxification as a method to address it. However, it's, it's, it's not something that you undergo continuously. It's a, it's a course of therapy that's implemented over a specific period of time, mm -hmm. typically at certain times of the year, and then you return back to a normal, healthy, balanced diet. Right. And, and I think that within the spectrum of cleansing and detoxification too, one of the things I talk about in the book is there's different approaches. You know, there's, it ranges anywhere from just following a simple diet for a little while. Like for so many people, that's all that's required is just to remove a lot of the complexity out of their diet and go back to eating really simple food, spice in a very simple way or not even spice at all, just really simple. You know, because sometimes, you know, if you're a bit of a foodie and you enjoy cooking, you make all this delightfully tasting food and sometimes you end up overeating. You eat more than you really need to because it just tastes so good. Right. Well, you know, if you just eat steamed vegetables and, you know, really simple foods, you'll get all your dietary needs met, but maybe you won't eat so much. And so you eat like that for a few weeks just to kind of reset your appetite, reset your digestion, mm. and it has a very balancing effect. So I call that like a simple diet type detoxification. Mm. That makes sense. It, yeah, but that, can, that, but that can range from that kind of dietary approach, which I think is sustainable for most people living busy, hectic lives that have jobs and families, you know, to, you know, if you, if you go on a retreat or you go up to the cabin for a little while, you know, and it's a time to go within, you remove some of your responsibilities, you can do something like a juice fast or a water fast. And there are other benefits to doing this kind of detoxification, but I wouldn't recommend those kinds of protocols in everyday life. They're just, for most people, they're just too much. You know, right. it's, it's, it's a time to kind of go within and, uh, you know, our body needs energy. And if we're not able to kind of shift that energy balance in our body and reduce our activity and our mental stimulation, then you know we, we can't do these more intensive types of, of fasts and detoxifications. They're really best done in kind of a retreat type environment. And that's the way they're traditionally done in, in, in India, in Ayurveda. Oh. See, this all makes sense because see you're speaking through the context of a culture, you know, of a cultural system. And it, and and so it, when I look I can get that when I'm looking through this book and looking at everything and that really comes through. Because just like, you know, when I first got interested in 
eating, you know, quote unquote healthy or natural things or whatever, people are like, oh no, you got to do a fast and you just have to drink this with the lemon juice and put a little cayenne pepper in it. And you have to just, you know, and I, and I remember just like, you know, and I had it in no context. So I said, oh, this is what you're supposed to do because groovy natural people do this. And so I went and I, you know, and I did this and I just got myself so sick, sicker than I've ever been. And it took me about two months to recover. And um, because I just shocked my system and and there was in no context, you know, and and I think that more extremist type things like that or certain that the diets that that like raw food or this or that that are like very different than what you're used to doing need to be done in a context. And that's what I'm getting from what all you're saying so you're very inclusive in all that you're saying but at the same time what i think that weaves it all together is your uh experience and studies into uh cultural medicine yeah i I think context is exceptionally important and i think it's good too to understand the basis of the rationale that you have Mm -hmm. when you're approaching these different therapies i a lot of what i'm practicing is bolstered by traditional empirical knowledge Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily scientific but it's been around for a very long time and it just remains for science to validate it you know often science is more interested in innovation than it is in tradition so uh, it can be some time before these traditional methods end up being validated but demonstrably they're true i mean they've been practiced for thousands of years there's an enormous amount of empirical evidence behind their practice uh and when you understand their system of use you can understand the logic there that's different than a diet say for example like the raw food diet that has a lot of reasons that you should support it but none of them are founded in any tradition and often use pseudo scientific ther- theories to support them like for example the enzyme theory and that's one that a lot of you know raw food vegans will say. We'll say, well, you know, you, you need to eat raw food because it contains all the enzymes that is re- necessary for digestion. And this discounts, <clears throat> sorry, this discounts the fact that you know we, our bodies produce over five liters of digestive fluids on a daily basis, and you produce far more enzymes in your digestive fluids than you actually consume in your food. And this is apart from the fact that enzymes themselves are proteins. And if your digestion is good, those proteins should be broken down in your stomach into individual peptides and amino acids. So they don't really have a dramatic effect upon digestion. And so you have this theory, this enzyme theory, which is central to raw food veganism, which is entirely unscientific. But it's the one that people espouse when they're trying to advocate for that particular dietary choice. But it isn't founded on any tradition. It's not, it doesn't have any really good science behind it. It's this kind of pseudoscience that ends up being uh, validated simply because a lot of people just repeat it. Right. And I think you know, we need to understand, too, where, where our knowledge comes from. I mean, if it comes from science, let's use the science properly. You know, let's really use the science properly and really understand it. And probably we'll find that the science doesn't give us a definitive answer, but it gives us some really good ideas and clues around something. Uh, or let's use a traditional model that has been validated empirically over thousands of years of practice. And then let's see them. Let's, let's, let, let's look at both of those paradigms and find, you know, a happy marriage between them. But not, you know, 
something like raw food veganism it doesn't really rely on any of those. You know, it has its own kind of internal theory, uh, which is based more on pseudoscience and a, a, a person's fantasy of what they hope is true as opposed to what is true. Wow. Okay. Um, you know, this has been amazing. Do you, do you have time for a couple of questions? Absolutely. Okay, great. Because um, <clears throat> we've already... You know, I, I kind of threw out my script in the first 10 minutes. I just got so enthralled in this whole conversation that I, I don't even rem- – I'm looking at all these notes and none of them match up with what I was going <laughs> to <laughs> I love that. I think we all covered it, although, you know, in our own kind of flowing way. So I I had asked some members if you wanted to submit some questions. So I, I you know, I, I can probably – squeeze a couple in here and uh one person uh here amber uh, actually went to your class at traditions and western herbalism conference down there in new mexico a few weeks back and you were talking about detoxing with uh, oil and a steam bath and um she was wondering uh how to do this at home and she asked will water bath work for those who don't have access to a sauna right so this therapy that's recommended in ayurveda is called a purva karma. It means a preparatory method of purification, mm-hmm. and it's it's used prior to the pancha karma, which is um, <clears throat> a fairly intensive system of purification that involves therapeutic vomiting, therapeutic purgation, etc. So the 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 initial therapy, the purva karma of the oil massage and the the steam bath therapy isn't a profound system of detoxification. It's used in conjunction with this other system. But nonetheless, it does have this ability to promote detoxification. Um, When you oil your body, traditionally in Ayurveda, the oil gets absorbed into the body. And and demonstrably, it does. I mean, a lot of people say that you can't really absorb all that much from your skin. You know, the skin has got this, you know, keratinized protein, uh, which repels water. But in fact, our skin is... You know, um, uh, it does allow lipid-soluble materials to pass through it, and so oil is one way to provide medication to the body. And they've been using this method in Ayurveda for a very long time of applying medications topically. Sometimes they'll use up to a liter of oil in a single session, uh, and a lot of it does get absorbed into the body. And what it does is it goes into the body, it permeates all the tissues, and it loosens up this ama, these, these toxins in the body, and then the person is then steamed. They're mm-hmm. put into a special chamber where they're then steamed, and then through sweat, uh, some of these toxins are liberated and eliminated from the body. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's oil and steam that's traditionally used in Ayurveda. A bath doesn't work the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closest thing that you could do would probably be a shower. And I would recommend that as being part of a daily regimen anyway. In Ayurveda, there's a, there's a daily regimen called Dhinacharya. And as part of the daily regimen, we're meant to actually oil our bodies every day. Uh-huh. Oil, oil has the quality of bringing abundance, abundance and nourishment to the body. And so Ayurveda suggests that in order to maintain the youthfulness of the skin, the suppleness of the tissues, and the health of the body, we should oil oil our bodies on a daily basis and it can be just a quick oil massage just starting with your ears neck shoulders just move your way down your torso uh, to your feet just a quick oil massage uh, and then traditionally Ayurveda recommends a little bit of exercise uh, you know you could do a little bit of weight bearing exercise 
and then you know just jump in the shower. And then traditionally, instead of using soap, what they use in Ayurveda is they use uh, bean powder. They would use something like uh, chickpea or chana bean powder or mung bean powder and just use that instead of the soap to remove the excessive oil and uh, it leaves an, a nice kind of sheen on the skin that doesn't feel greasy, uh, that helps to nourish the skin and, and really, you know, one of the side effects of it in Ayurveda, it's used to balance the nervous system. So when you do that, you come out of that and you feel very calm, very relaxed and very grounded. And so it's a very good approach um, to maintain general health on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But in terms of its specific benefits and detoxification without the other protocols, I don't think it has a profound effect, but it certainly has some effect. Okay. And um, okay, so next question is uh, in your book, uh, uh, so you talk about fermenting rice and legumes before cooking them, and you you share a method of making fermented water to soak them in. And she wants to know, uh, will it work just to soak them in whey, or does it have to be this other ferment? You could soak them in whey. Okay. You could certainly soak them in whey. That wasn't the way it, uh, the rice was traditionally fermented. Mm-hmm. Um, it was using just you know, the wild bacteria and yeasts. Uh, but if you want to introduce a culture, you can certainly do that as well, and that will also help to speed it up. Okay, great. And uh, good foods for uh, liver support? And how about lymph support, <coughs> lymph and liver support? Uh, well, um, I think for you know foods are are really important to play here, but we also need to make sure that we're you know exercise is really key. You know the lymphatic system is dependent upon the regular contraction of muscles right. to pump lymph through the body. Right. So just taking herbs without exercise would seem to me to be counterproductive. Uh, so, but I mean there there are so many. Of course, we've got lots of good lymphagogues in the Western herbal tradition. Everything that's you know, from Red clover and cleavers as a very mild uh, lymphagogues to red root and poke root on the um, more powerful end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And then once you move lymph, of course, you know, you want to make sure that you're marshalling it out of the body. So you also need to use herbs to help support the liver. There are so many useful herbs in India. One of the more important herbs that they use is called guduchi. Mm-hmm. Um, um, which is a very useful herb. Uh, a herb that I use a lot uh, in my practice is organ grape root. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite herbs in, in India's name is Daruharidra. They use this very similar herb. They use it in Nepal for almost the same types of indications. Very good blood cleanser, very good cholagogue to help um, to remove these toxins from the body. Okay. And... Um... Pretty much, if you just go through and make all the recipes that are in your book, I think you'd probably be eating pretty healthy. There's your answer right there. <laughs> yeah, all kinds exactly. of soup I mean, stocks and soups and stews and meat, poultry, fish recipe, fermented vegetables, fats and oils, nuts and seeds, grains and, uh, grains and legumes. Uh, and you even have a little section on snacks and sweets and libations. So, Right. Well, that, the last section has uh, a couple recipes there which are used to help support health. You know, I'm, I, I can't, I don't find myself recommending that people eat dessert all that often, you know. Um, however, you know, in the, in the sort of European uh, uh, tradition of the, the sanatoriums where they would have people come and, you know, eat f- fairly clean food, you know, seven days a week, 
on a Sunday evening, they still would have a big traditional meal and have dessert. And in the same way, I still, you know, allow people or encourage my patients to have a, a balanced approach. I mean, there's times to celebrate, and one of the ways that we celebrate is by eating tasty food. But we need to make sure we we do it on a limited basis. And I best the, the best way to do that is to do it on a very conscious basis. So you're consciously deciding to eat well and have a great dessert and uh, and and have a wonderful time doing that. Uh, and then the rest of the time, making sure that you're eating relatively healthy. So I don't have a lot of recipes that are sweets per se. They're they, they tend to be kind of <laughs> yeah, more medicinal in their focus. But yeah, yeah. but yeah. But I got to try your hot toddy recipe because it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, I learned about it when I was living in Ireland for a year. But this is kind of like where hot toddy meets chai. Exactly. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> it's great. So I'm looking forward to trying this. It's like the whiskey and rum, whiskey or rum along with like cardamom and cloves <laughs> yeah. and nutmeg and all your favorite Yep. So, Todd, this has been really awesome, and I appreciate you spending time with us. And Food is Medicine, the Theory and Practice of Food, uh, available at toddcaldicott.com. I encourage you to go there. Uh, and they can purchase it through this, that site, right? Actually, the uh, the website to get Food is Medicine, uh, the Theory and Practice of Food, is foodasmedicine.ca. Oh, dot .ca because it's a Canadian website, so mm -hmm. we use .ca mm -hmm. up here. Oh, okay. It's also, it's also available on Amazon.com as well. Oh, great. And um, and also, but make sure you go to TodCaldegat.com because I really enjoyed going through uh, many of the articles well laid out. I have some great videos on there. Um, and uh, the food is medicine area is really well described. Uh, different ways of cooking, different types of diets, uh, just very clearly explained. I learned a lot just uh, spending <laughs> a couple hours going through that. Um, so uh, bookmark that for sure and visit it often. And and um, and like I said, food is medicine. Other books you can go to Amazon or you can go to uh, you can go to, to his website or for this one, foodismedicine.ca. So Todd Caldicott, thank you very much for joining us on Nerd Mentor Radio. John, thank you so much for having me. And we'll have, love to have you back sometime. So take care. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio, copyright LearningHerbs.com, all rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>